Section 11. The Alliance of the Workers and Farmers The brother-in-arms and counterpart of the worker in the country is the agricultural laborer. They are two parts of one in the same class. Their interests are inseparable. The industrial workers' program of transitional demands, with changes here and there, is likewise the program of the agricultural proletariat. The peasants, farmers, represent another class. They are the petty bourgeoisie of the village. The petty bourgeoisie is made up of various layers, from the semi-proletarian to the exploiter elements. In accordance with this, the political task of the industrial proletariat is to carry the class struggle into the country. Only thus will he be able to draw a dividing line between his allies and his enemies. The peculiarities of national development of each country find their queerest expression in the status of farmers and, to some extent, of the urban petty bourgeoisie, artisans and shopkeepers. These classes, no matter how numerically strong they may be, essentially are representative survivals of pre-capitalist forms of production. The sections of the Fourth International should work out with all possible concreteness a program of transitional demands concerning the peasants, farmers, and urban petty bourgeoisie, in conformity with the conditions of each country. The advanced workers should learn to give clear and concrete answers to the questions put by their future allies. While the farmer remains an independent petty producer, he is in need of cheap credit, of agricultural machines and fertilizer at prices he can afford to pay, favorable conditions of transport, and conscientious organization of the market for his agricultural products. But the banks, the trusts, the merchants rob the farmer from every side. Only the farmers themselves, with the help of the workers, can curb this robbery. Committees elected by small farmers should make their appearance on the national scene and jointly with the workers' committees and committees of bank employees take into their hands control of transport, credit, and mercantile operations affecting agriculture. By falsely citing the excessive demands of the workers, the big bourgeoisie skillfully transforms the question of commodity prices into a wedge to be driven between the workers and the farmers, and between the workers and the petty bourgeoisie of the cities. The peasant, artisan, small merchant, unlike the industrial worker, office, and civil service employee, cannot demand a wage increase corresponding to the increase in prices. The official struggle of the government with high prices is only a deception of the masses. But the farmers, artisans, merchants, in their capacity of consumers, can step into the politics of price-fixing shoulder-to-shoulder with the workers. To the capitalist's lamentations about the costs of production, of transport, and trade, the consumers answer, Show us your books! We demand control over the fixing of prices. The organs of this control should be the committees on prices, made up of delegates from factories, trade unions, cooperatives, farmers' organizations, the little man of the city, housewives, etc. 
By this means, the workers will be able to prove to the farmers that the real reason for high prices is not high wages, but the exorbitant profits of the capitalists and the overhead expenses of capitalist anarchy. The program for the nationalization of the land and collectivization of agriculture should be so drawn that from its very basis it should exclude the possibility of expropriation of small farmers and their compulsory collectivization. The farmer will remain owner of his plot of land as long as he himself believes it is possible or necessary. In order to rehabilitate the program of socialism in the eyes of the farmer, it is necessary to expose mercilessly the Stalinist methods of collectivization which are dictated not by the interests of the farmers or workers, but by the interests of the bureaucracy. The expropriation of the expropriators, likewise, does not signify forcible confiscation of the property of artisans and shopkeepers. On the contrary, workers' control of banks and trusts, even more the nationalization of these concerns, can create for the urban petty bourgeoisie incomparably more favorable conditions of credit purchase and sale than is possible under the unchecked domination of the monopolies. Dependence upon private capital will be replaced by dependence upon the state, which will be the more attractive to the needs of its small co-workers and agents the more firmly the toilers themselves keep the state in their own hands. The practical participation of the exploited farmers in the control of different fields of economy will allow them to decide for themselves whether or not it would be profitable for them to go over to collective working of the land, at what date and on what scale. Industrial workers should consider themselves duty-bound to show farmers every cooperation in traveling this road through the trade unions, factory committees, and, above all, through the workers' and farmers' government. The alliance proposed by the proletariat, not by the middle classes in general, but to the exploited layers of the urban and rural petty bourgeoisie, against all exploiters, including those of the middle classes, can be based not on compulsion, but only on free consent, which should be consolidated in a special contract. This contract is the program of transitional demands, voluntarily accepted by both sides. Section 12. The Struggle Against Imperialism and War The whole world outlook, and consequently also the inner political life of individual countries, is overcast by the threat of world war. Already, the immediate catastrophe sends violent ripples of apprehension through the very broadest masses of mankind. The Second International repeats its infamous politics of 1914, with all the greater assurance since today it is the common turn which plays first fiddle in chauvinism. As quickly as the danger of war assumed concrete outline, the Stalinists, outstripping the bourgeois and petty bourgeois pacifists by far, became blatant haranguers for so-called national defense. The revolutionary struggle against war thus rests fully on the shoulders of the Fourth International. The Bolshevik-Leninist policy regarding this question, 
formulated in the thesis of the International Secretariat, War in the Fourth International, 1934, preserves all of its force today. In the next period, a revolutionary party will depend for success primarily on its policy on the question of war. A correct policy is composed of two elements, an uncompromising attitude on imperialism and its wars, and the ability to base one's program on the experience of the masses themselves. The bourgeoisie and its agents use the war question more than any other to deceive the people by means of abstractions, general formulas, lame phraseology, neutrality, collective defense, arming for the defense of peace, struggle against fascism, and so on. All such formulas reduce themselves in the end to the fact that the war question, i.e. the fate of the people, is left in the hands of the imperialists, their governing staffs, their diplomacy, their generals, with all their intrigues and plots against the people. The Fourth International rejects with abhorrence all such abstractions which play the same role in the democratic camp as in the fascist, honor, blood, race. But abhorrence is not enough. It is imperative to help the masses discern, by means of verifying criteria, slogans and demands, the concrete essence of fraudulent abstractions. Disarmament? But the entire question revolves around who will disarm whom. The only disarmament which can avert or end war is the disarmament of the bourgeoisie by the workers. But to disarm the bourgeoisie, the workers must arm themselves. Neutrality? But the proletariat is nothing like neutral in the war between Japan and China or a war between Germany and the USSR. Then what is meant is the defense of China and the USSR? Of course, but not by the imperialists who will strangle both China and the USSR. Defense of the fatherland? But by this abstraction, the bourgeoisie understands the defense of its profits and plunder. We stand ready to defend the fatherland from foreign capitalists if we first bind our own capitalists hand and foot and hinder them from attacking foreign fatherlands. If the worker and the farmers of our country become its real masters, if the wealth of the country be transformed from the hands of a tiny minority to the hands of the people, if the army becomes a weapon of the exploited instead of the exploiters. It is necessary to interpret these fundamental ideas by breaking them up into more concrete and partial ones, dependent upon the course of events and the orientation of thought of the masses. In addition, it is necessary to differentiate strictly between the pacifism of the diplomat, professor, journalist, and the pacifism of the carpenter, agricultural worker, and the charwoman. In one case, pacifism is a screen for imperialism. In the other, it is the confused expression of distrust in imperialism. When the farmer or worker speaks about the defense of the fatherland, he means defense of his home, his family, and other similar families from invasion, bombs, and poison gas. The capitalist and his journalist understand, by the defense of the fatherland, the seizure of colonies and markets, the predatory increase of the national share of world income. 
bourgeois pacifism and patriotism are shot through with deceit in the pacifism and even patriotism of the oppressed there are elements which reflect on the one hand a hatred of destructive war and on the other a clinging to what they believe to be their own good elements of which we must know how to seize upon in order to draw the requisite conclusions using these considerations as its point of departure the fourth international supports every even if insufficient demand if it can draw the masses to a certain extent into active politics awaken their criticism and strengthen their control over the machinations of the bourgeoisie from this point of view our american section for example entirely supports the proposal for establishing a referendum on the question of declaring war no democratic reform it is understood can by itself prevent the rulers from provoking war when they wish it it is necessary to give frank warning of this but notwithstanding the illusions of the masses in regard to the proposed referendum their support of it reflects the distrust felt by workers and farmers for the bourgeois government and congress without supporting and without sparing illusions it is necessary to support with all possible strength the progressive distrust of the exploited toward the exploiters the more widespread the movement for the referendum becomes the sooner will the bourgeois pacifists move away from it the more completely will the betrayers of the common turn be compromised the more acute will distrust of the imperialists become from this viewpoint it is necessary to advance the demand electoral rights for men and women beginning with the age of eighteen those who will be called upon to die for the fatherland tomorrow should have the right to vote today the struggle against war must first of all begin with the revolutionary mobilization of the youth light must be shed upon the problem of war from all angles hinging upon the side from which it will confront the masses at a given moment war is a gigantic commercial enterprise especially for the war industry the sixty families are therefore first-line patriots and the chief provocateurs of war workers control of war industries is the first step in the struggle against the manufacturers of war to the slogan of the reformists attacks on military profits we counterpose the slogans confiscation of military profit and expropriation of the traffickers in war industries where military industry is nationalized as in france the slogan of workers control preserves its full strength the proletariat has as little confidence in the government of the bourgeoisie as in the individual capitalist not one man and not one penny for the bourgeois government not an armaments program but a program of useful public works complete independence of workers organizations from military police control once and for all we must tear from the hands of the greedy and merciless imperialist clique scheming behind the backs of the people the disposition of the people's fate in accordance with this we demand complete abolition of secret diplomacy all treaties and agreements to be made accessible to the workers and farmers military training and arming of workers and farmers under direct control of workers and farmers committees 
creation of military schools for the training of commanders among the toilers chosen by workers' organizations, substitution for the standing army of a people's militia, indissolubly linked up with factories, mines, farms, etc. Imperialist war is the continuation and sharpening of the predatory politics of the bourgeoisie. The struggle of the proletariat against war is the continuation and sharpening of its class struggle. The beginning of war alters the situation, and partially the means of the struggle between the classes, but not the aim and basic course. The imperialist bourgeoisie dominates the world. In its basic character, the approaching war will therefore be an imperialist war. The fundamental content of the politics of the international proletariats will consequently be a struggle against imperialism and its war. In this struggle, the basic principle is, the chief enemy is in your own country, or the defeat of your own imperialist governments is the lesser evil. But not all countries of the world are imperialist countries. On the contrary, the majority are victims of imperialism. Some of the colonial or semi-colonial countries will undoubtedly attempt to utilize the war in order to ease off the yoke of slavery. Their war will be not imperialist but liberating. It will be the duty of the international proletariat to aid oppressed countries in their war against oppressors. The same duty applies in regard to aiding the USSR or whatever other workers' governments might arise before the war or during the war. The defeat of every imperialist government in the struggle with the worker states or with a colonial country is the lesser evil. The workers of imperialist countries, however, cannot help an anti-imperialist country through their own government no matter what might be the diplomatic and military relations between the two countries at a given moment. If the governments find themselves in a temporary and, by the very essence of the matter, unreliable alliance, then the proletariat of the imperialist country continues to remain in class opposition to its own government and supports the non-imperialist ally through its own methods, i.e., through the methods of the international class struggle, agitation not only against their perfidious allies, but also in favor of a worker state in a colonial country. Boycott, strikes in one case, rejection of boycott and strikes in another case, etc. In supporting the colonial country or the USSR in a war, the proletariat does not in the slightest degree solidarize either with the bourgeois governments of the colonial country or with the Thermidorian bureaucracy of the USSR. On the contrary, it maintains full political independence from the one as from the other. Giving aid in a just and progressive war, the revolutionary proletariat wins the sympathy of the workers in the colonies and in the USSR, strengthens there the authority and influence of the Fourth International, and increases its ability to help overthrow the bourgeois government in the colonial country and the reactionary bureaucracy in the USSR. At the beginning of the war, the sections of the Fourth International will inevitably feel themselves isolated. Every war takes the national masses unawares and impels them to the side of the government apparatus. The internationalists will have to swim against the stream. 
However, the devastation and misery brought about by the new war, which in the first months will far outstrip the bloody horrors of 1914 to 1918, will quickly prove sobering. The discontents of the masses and their revolt will grow by leaps and bounds. The sections of the Fourth International will be found at the head of the revolutionary tide. The program of transitional demands will gain burning actuality. The problem of the conquest of power by the proletariat will loom in full stature. Before exhausting or drowning mankind in blood, capitalism befouls the world atmosphere with poisonous vapors of national race and hatred. Anti-Semitism today is one of the most malignant convulsions of capitalism's death agony. An uncompromising disclosure of the roots of race prejudice and all forms and shades of national arrogance and chauvinism, particularly anti-Semitism, should become part of the daily work of all sections of the Fourth International, as the most important part of the struggle against imperialism and war. Our basic slogan remains, Workers of the World Unite! Section 13. Workers and Farmers' Government this formula, Workers' and Farmers' Government, first appeared in the agitation of the Bolsheviks in 1917 and was definitely accepted after the October insurrection. In the final instance, it represented nothing more than the popular designation for the already established dictatorship of the proletariat. The significance of this designation comes mainly from the fact that it underscored the idea of an alliance between the proletariat and the peasantry, lodged in the base of the Soviet power. When the Comintern and the Epigones tried to revive the formula buried by history of the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry, it gave to the formula the workers and peasants government a completely different, purely democratic, i.e. bourgeois, content, counterposing it to the dictatorship of the proletariat. The Bolshevik Leninists resolutely rejected the slogan of the workers and peasants government in the bourgeois democratic version. They affirmed then and affirm now that when the party of the proletariat refuses to step beyond bourgeois democratic limits, its alliance with the peasantry is simply turned into a support for capital, as was the case with the Mensheviks and the social revolutionaries in 1917. With the Chinese Communist Party in 1925-1927, and as is now the case with the People's Front in Spain, France, and other countries. From April to September of 1917, the Bolsheviks demanded that the SRs and the Mensheviks break with the liberal bourgeoisie and take power into their own hands. Under this provision, the Bolshevik party promised the Mensheviks and the SRs, as the petty bourgeois representatives of the workers and peasants, its revolutionary aid against the bourgeoisie, categorically refusing, however, either to enter into the government of the Mensheviks and the SRs or to carry political responsibility for it. If the Mensheviks and the SRs had actually broken with the cadets, liberals, and with foreign imperialism, then the workers and peasants' government created by them could only have hastened and facilitated the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat. 
But it was exactly because of this that the leadership of petty bourgeois democracy resisted with all possible strength the establishment of its own government. The experience of Russia demonstrated, and the experience of Spain and France once again confirm, that even under very favorable conditions, the parties of petty bourgeois democracy, SRs, Social Democrats, Stalinists, Anarchists, are incapable of creating a government of workers and peasants, that is, a government independent of the bourgeoisie. Nevertheless, the demand of the Bolsheviks addressed to the Mensheviks and the SRs, break with the bourgeoisie, take the power into your own hands, had for the masses tremendous educational significance. The obstinate unwillingness of the Mensheviks and the SRs to take power, so dramatically exposed during the July days, definitely doomed them before mass opinion and prepared the victory of the Bolsheviks. The central task of the Fourth International consists in freeing the proletariat from the old leadership, whose conservatism is in complete contradiction to the catastrophic eruptions of disintegrating capitalism and represents the chief obstacle to historical progress. The chief accusation which the Fourth International advances against the traditional organizations of the proletariat is the fact that they do not wish to tear themselves away from the political semi-corpse of the bourgeoisie. Under these conditions, the demand, systematically addressed to the old leadership, break with the bourgeoisie, take power, is an extremely important weapon for exposing the treacherous character of the parties and organizations of the Second, Third, and Amsterdam Internationals. The slogan, Workers and Farmers' Governments, is thus acceptable to us only in the sense that it had in 1917 with the Bolsheviks, i.e., as an anti-bourgeois and anti-capitalist slogan, but in no case in that democratic sense, which later the epigones gave it, transforming it from a bridge to socialist revolution into the chief barrier upon its path. Of all the parties and organizations which base themselves on the workers and peasants and speak in their name, we demand that they break politically from the bourgeoisie and enter upon the road of struggle for the workers and farmers' government. On this road, we promise them full support against capitalist reaction. At the same time, we indefatigably develop agitation around those transitional demands which should, in our opinion, form the program of the workers and farmers' government. Is the creation of such a government by the traditional workers' organizations possible? Past experience shows, as has already been stated, that this is, to say the least, highly improbable. However, one cannot categorically deny in advance the theoretical possibility that, under the influence of completely exceptional circumstances – war, defeat, financial crash, mass revolutionary pressure, etc. – the petty bourgeois parties, including the Stalinists, may go further than they themselves wish along the road to a break with the bourgeoisie. In any case, one thing is not to be doubted. Even if this highly improbable variant somewhere at some time becomes a reality, and the workers and farmers' government in the above-mentioned sense is established in fact, it would represent merely a short episode on the road to the actual dictatorship of the proletariat. 
However, there is no need to indulge in guesswork. The agitation around the slogan of a workers' and farmers' government preserves under all conditions a tremendous educational value, and not accidentally. This generalized slogan proceeds entirely along the line of the political development of our epoch, the bankruptcy and decomposition of the old bourgeois parties, the downfall of democracy, the growth of fascism, the accelerated drive of the workers toward more active and aggressive politics. Each of the transitional demands should, therefore, lead to one and the same political conclusion. The workers need to break with all traditional parties of the bourgeoisie in order, jointly with the farmers, to establish their own power. It is impossible in advance to foresee what will be the concrete stages of the revolutionary mobilization of the masses. The sections of the Fourth International should critically orient themselves at each new stage and advance such slogans as will aid the striving of the workers for independent politics, deepen the class character of these politics, destroy reformist and pacifist illusions, strengthen the connection of the vanguard with the masses, and prepare the revolutionary conquest of power. Section 14. Soviets. Factory committees, as already stated, are elements of dual power inside the factory. Consequently, their existence is possible only under condition of increasing pressure by the masses. This is likewise the rule of special mass groupings for the struggle against war, of the Committee on Prices, and all other new centers of the movement the very appearance of which bears witness to the fact that the class struggle has overflowed the limits of the traditional organizations of the proletariat. These new organs and centers, however, will soon begin to feel their lack of cohesion and their insufficiency. Not one of the traditional demands can be fully met under the conditions of preserving the bourgeois regime. At the same time, the deepening of the social crisis will increase not only the sufferings of the masses, but also their impatience, persistence, and pressure. Ever new layers of the oppressed will raise up their heads and come forward with their demands. Millions of the toil-torn little men, to whom the reformist leaders never gave a thought, will begin to pound insistently on the doors of workers' organizations. The unemployed will join the movement, the agricultural workers, the ruined and semi-ruined farmers, the oppressed of the cities, the women workers, housewives, proletarianized layers of the intelligentsia, all of these will seek unity and leadership. How are the different demands and forms of struggle to be harmonized, even if only within the limits of one city? History has already answered this question. Through Soviets, these will unite the representatives of all the fighting groups. For this purpose, no one has yet proposed a different form of organization. Indeed, it would hardly be possible to think up a better one. Soviets are not limited to an a priori party program. They throw open their doors to all the exploited. Through these doors pass representatives of all strata, drawn into the general current of the struggle. 
the organization, broadening out together with the movement, is renewed again and again in its womb. All political currents of the proletariat can struggle for leadership of the Soviets on the basis of the widest democracy. The slogan of Soviets, therefore, crowns the program of transitional demands. Soviets can arise only at a time when the mass movement enters into an openly revolutionary stage. From the first moment of their appearance, the Soviets, acting as a pivot around which millions of toilers are united in their struggle against the exploiters, become competitors and opponents of local authorities and then of the central government. If the factory committee creates a dual power in the factory, then the Soviets initiate a period of dual power in the country. Dual power in its turn is the culminating point of the transitional period. Two regimes, the bourgeois and the proletarian, are irreconcilably opposed to each other. Conflict between them is inevitable. The fate of society depends on the outcome. Should the revolution be defeated, the fascist dictatorship of the bourgeoisie will follow. In the case of victory, the power of the Soviets, that is, the dictatorship of the proletariat and the socialist reconstruction of society, will arise. Section 15. Backward Countries and the Program of Transitional Demands Colonial and semi-colonial countries are backward countries by their very essence, but backward countries are part of a world dominated by imperialism. Their development, therefore, has a combined character. The most primitive economic forms are combined with the last word in capitalist technique and culture. In like manner are defined the political strivings of the proletariat of backward countries, the struggle for the most elementary achievements of national independence in bourgeois democracy is combined with the socialist struggle against world imperialism. Democratic slogans, transitional demands, and the problems of the socialist revolution are not divided into separate historical epochs in this struggle, but stem directly from one another. The Chinese proletariat had barely begun to organize trade unions before it had to provide for Soviets. In this sense, the present program is completely applicable to colonial and semi-colonial countries, at least to those where the proletariat has become capable of carrying on independent politics. The central task of the colonial and semi-colonial countries is the agrarian revolution, i.e. liquidation of feudal heritages, and national independence, i.e. the overthrow of the imperialist yoke. Both tasks are closely linked with each other. It is impossible merely to reject the democratic program. It is imperative that in the struggle the masses outgrow it. The slogan for a national or constituent assembly preserves its full force for such countries as China or India. This slogan must be indissolubly tied up with the problem of national liberation and agrarian reform. As a primary step, the workers must be armed with this democratic program. Only they will be able to summon and unite the farmers. 
On the basis of the revolutionary democratic program, it is necessary to oppose the workers to the national bourgeoisie. Then, at a certain stage in the mobilization of the masses, under the slogans of revolutionary democracy, Soviets can and should arise. Their historical role in each given period, particularly their relation to the National Assembly, will be determined by the political level of the proletariat, the bond between them and the peasantry, and the character of the proletarian party policies. Sooner or later, the Soviets should overthrow bourgeois democracy. Only they are capable of bringing the democratic revolution to a conclusion and likewise opening an era of socialist revolution. The relative weight of the individual democratic and transitional demands in the proletariat struggle, their mutual ties, and their order of presentation, is determined by the peculiarities and specific conditions of each backward country, and to a considerable extent by the degree of its backwardness. Nevertheless, the general trend of revolutionary development in all backward countries can be determined by the formula of the permanent revolution, in the sense definitely imparted to it by the three revolutions in Russia, 1905, February of 1917, and October of 1917. The common turn has provided backward countries with a classic example of how it is possible to ruin a powerful and promising revolution. During the stormy mass upsurge in China in 1925 to 1927, the Comintern failed to advance the slogans for a national assembly, and at the same time forbade the creation of Soviets. The bourgeois party, the Kuomintang, was to replace, according to Stalin's plan, both the National Assembly and the Soviets. After the masses had been smashed by the Kuomintang, the Comintern organized a caricature of a Soviet in Canton. Following the inevitable collapse of the Canton uprising, the Comintern took the road of guerrilla warfare and peasant Soviets with complete passivity on the part of the industrial proletariat. Landing thus in a blind alley, the Comintern took advantage of the Sino-Japanese War to liquidate Soviet China with a stroke of the pen, subordinating not only the peasant Red Army, but also the so-called Communist Party to the identical Kuomintang, i.e. the bourgeoisie. The betrayal of the international proletarian revolution by the Comintern for the sake of friendship with the democratic slave masters, could not but help it betray simultaneously also the struggle for the liberation of the colonial masses, and indeed with even greater cynicism than practiced by the Second International before it. One of the tasks of the People's Front in national defense politics is to turn hundreds of millions of the colonial population into cannon fodder for democratic imperialism. The banner on which is emblazoned the struggle for the liberation of the colonial and semi-colonial peoples, i.e. a good half of mankind, has definitely passed into the hands of the Fourth International.